District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about the organization, visit www.cfact.org. I've got a special guest in store for you all today. We have Cable Smith of Lone Star Outdoor Show on the podcast today. It's his turn to come on to my podcast. I first came on to his a few months ago, and it was great to build rapport with him. We talked at length about what is happening in conservation, our thoughts on the new ATF pick that was unveiled, and some of his very past controversial statements, how you cannot be for public lands and restrict public access on national parks, especially during the pandemic, a lot of gun stuff, kind of the future of hunting, and we even talked a bit about billionaire Bill Gates becoming now the wealthiest landowner in the United States, and potentially what that means. Is he going into it for a good reason? What is the whole purpose behind that? So we cover the gamut of different issues today. It's a little long, but I think you'll find it to be very fascinating. He has a great pulse on sportsmen's issues, and he's been doing this for a long time. He's had his radio show for over a decade, so I figure why not finally bring him on the podcast to chat on what is happening. We have a lot of similar topics that we discussed. So here is Cable Smith of Lone Star Outdoors. Let me know what you think. I'm joined by Cable Smith of Lone Star Outdoors show here on District of Conservation. Cable, good to finally have you on my podcast. It was a treat coming on yours. So happy to cross pollinate. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Could you explain to my listeners a little bit about your background, what your show does, and kind of your involvement in the conservation sphere and in the great outdoors. Yeah, absolutely. So um, had this show for almost 12 years now. It uh, started out as just a radio show. Podcasts weren't really a thing a dozen years ago. It's crazy to, to think about that. Um, but, you know, you start migrating your stuff on uh, iTunes and later on Spotify when it came around. It's, it's just kind of an offshoot of the radio show. But, um, I mean, obviously with the increased popularity of podcasts, I think as many people probably consume it um, in that medium as they do listening to the radio these days. So I've uh, been doing it a while and it's just an all encompassing hunting, fishing and, and conservation talk show, uh, much like yours. It's, it's a uh, guest, you know, intensive. Um, I um, focus on things that, I mean, things that I think are interesting, right? It could be a guy catching a state record bass or uh, you know, things that you're passionate about, like um, why can't we hunt or trap wolves in certain places uh, so lots of interesting stuff and, and cool guests um, that can provide, you know, expertise on a certain topic or, uh, you know, this past week, a wounded warrior um, lost his leg in Afghanistan, uh, Sergeant Dan Fye and SCI Alaska ended up taking him on the, a grizzly slash moose hunt of a lifetime. Uh, so that was a pretty cool story and a special interest piece, but all that kind of good stuff. Um, yeah, that's basically what it is. And I, I can't imagine doing anything else. You've had great success with it. You've had pretty high profile guests. You've also helped break some news. You've also inspired a lot of robust debate. Could you, could you share perhaps some of the guests and topics that have been your favorite to cover and highlight? Yeah, sure. Um, recent guest, I would say Dan Crenshaw, just that guy's sharp as a tack. And, um, you know, I align very much so on the on his conservative ideals. Um, 
So he's he's a fascinating individual. Uh, Stephen Ranella is always uh, a great guest. And last time he was on, we talked about some of the um, parasitic born diseases that he's been fortunate enough to to get here <laughs> uh, through his outdoor adventures. Uh, great writer as well. Um, some of the others recently think about that off the top of my head. You had Mark uh, Oliva from NSSF. Yeah, oh yeah, Mark. So yeah, so, and I know that you, you know, Mark, that was one that I should have done a long time ago. Mark is so well educated and well versed on the, the shooting industry and um, certainly on the manufacturing and, and um, you know, industry side of things more knowledge and, and stuff than I, that I possibly could claim to have on that. And just looking at, we talked about the uh, potential lead shot ban. Like and when I see, you know, of course, anti-hunters are going to be advocating for lead shot ban. Right. But when I hear other hunters, you know, beating that drum, it's, it's something that I had to be like, wait, why are we doing that? And what would the real impact be if we all of a sudden implemented a, either a statewide or a federal lead shot ban? And uh, the effects would be devastating. I mean, bye-bye hunting, shooting. Uh, these manufacturers can't just all of a sudden switch their their plants over to start making non-toxic shot, whether that's uh, for rifles or for shotguns. Uh, you think about the Pittman-Robertson dollars behind. And here's the cool thing, Gabriella, is that every shooter out there, and we know only, uh, well, and Mark gave me this stat, only uh, 20% of gun owners actually hunt. So the other 80%, whether they want to or not, doesn't matter. They're funding conservation when they buy bullets or guns. And so thank you to all of you guys out there who don't hunt. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. And we want you to keep buying ammunition because it helps fund conservation. Uh, but a lead shot ban would just be absolutely devastating. And they, you know, the antis know that. What's amazing is that these hunters don't understand that. <laughs> so hopefully we can educate them. It's important to educate them. And I know that does often inspire a lot of debate, especially a lot of keyboard warriors. <laughs> Sometimes uh, I've seen yeah. it on your social media at times. And I think there are even some bills and they always introduce this. I feel like every single congressional term, there's always a bill to ban lead tackles and bullets on public lands. They did this by executive order in the last, let's say, waning days of the Obama administration. And then the Trump administration interior department first rule, they got rid of that prohibition. Now we see with kind of a similar administration, if not even more kind of preservationist minded, maybe more anti-gun administration in effect right now, we see possibly their interior department may be weighing that too. I have no doubt at some point we may see that proposal uh, come. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have much faith in Deb Howland as the uh, Secretary of, of Interior. She seems to be more of a preservationist over a conservationist. And SCI asked her if they could get a no net loss commitment on basically public land access for the purpose of hunting and fishing, and she would not commit to that. So I think that, uh, like, why would you not commit to that? What's the big deal, right? Um, but she wouldn't do it. And so I think that, you know, that certainly that certainly leaves me to question who she is and what her intentions are. Um, and, and preservation is not conservation. Preservation is more of a leave it alone attitude. Conservation is, you know, we're actively actively using public lands for the pursuit of, of hunting and fishing, which obviously 
brings dollars back into conservation where preservation does not. During her confirmation hearing, I thought Senator Steve Daines did a great job of asking her about these wildlife issues. It was important to obviously question her about her stances on energy issues, which do relate to conservation in many cases. But he was one of the few who probed her on that. And when I heard her responses or when I saw her responses, I was watching that live on the stream service that they had I wasn't really given any confidence about her responses. She kind of was like, well, when I get approved, then I may sit down with you and do this. And by all indications, initially, I haven't really seen her really throw a bone to sportsmen and women. I'm not sure she's going to keep, they may have a shooting sports and hunting council like they did. Obama's actually administration did, but they gave more weight to environmentalists, I think. But they may symbolically have or ceremonially have a similar kind of outfit like the Trump administration did, but maybe give other stakeholders a lot more power. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, well, I'll, I'll look at look at it like this. New Mexico is a very blue state and, you know, I don't want to get too political, but blue states tend to manage wildlife from a more emotional standpoint than they do a scientific one. And it's ironic because they're, quote, the party of science. But when it comes to wildlife management, science has nothing to do with it. And New Mexico, for example, just like two weeks ago, um, actually the governor signed it last week. Uh, she, I forget her name, but um, Michelle Lujan. Okay, yeah, Michelle yeah, Lujan. Grisham Lujan or Lujan Grisham. I forget yeah. exactly. So she signed the uh, the statewide trapping ban on federal state lands, and you know it's just it's there's no point. That's not scientific. It's. Uh, and, and that's where Deb Howland comes from. So it gives you the mindset of, of what that state is all about right now with their uh, current political leadership. So I think where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, obviously, we have to wait and see. We can't judge a, a book by the cover. But uh, I think sportsmen and women certainly have cause for concern with her appointment. I think she's only been in her post for a month now. I saw she was in Utah and she met with Senator Mike Lee, who has been very critical of just kind of these blanket statement efforts to completely designate national monuments without consultation so much. And they say, well, all these people who want to shrink them are not consulting stakeholders, but it's really interesting. I saw that photo. It didn't look hostile, their meeting, but uh, he, he said, I'll invite you to Utah to f- see this firsthand and potentially what not reforming the Antiquities Act looks like. And if for those of the listeners listening and they don't know what the Antiquities Act is, I've, I've covered several episodes and I had Mike Lee actually come on. And I asked, I asked him to clarify whether or not he is anti-public lands. And I thought his answer was really interesting because he he was quite offended, not by me asking that, but by people calling him uh, a hater of public land. So I wanted him to clarify exactly if those characterizations were true. And I thought his answer was very, very interesting in that respect. So yeah, it was interesting to see her even go to Utah, but I think she has sadly predetermined conclusions stemming back from her very short tenure in Congress. Yeah. Well, and Mike Lee is uh, good buddies with with our Senator Ted Cruz. They seem to politically align uh, on on a lot of issues, you know, and I've had Ted on and I kind of asked him the same question and I didn't really think his answer was that great. And I love Ted Cruz, um, but the public land thing is one deal where I just kind of like, eh, I don't... It's like any politician, though. You, If you can agree with 60 to 70% of, of what they're about, then that's who you vote for. Um, and I don't just dismiss the fact that, yeah, he might not be the biggest public lands advocate, uh, but, man, he's all about the Second Amendment. And, you know, I put that above 
pub, above public lands for me personally. Uh, it's like, you know, if you take my guns away, why, why do I need, I don't even need public lands to go hunting. So. Uh, I don't think they're haters of public lands. I know they no, do a lot pro, of <laughs> pro private. I mean, he was like, cause I asked Ted, I was like, so, you know, Texas is 98% privately owned. And I th- he was like, yeah, you know, you can go get a deer lease. I'm like, well, yeah, you can, but that costs, that's expensive. A lot of yeah. people don't want to do that. Um, well, I think they just prefer the state to control the public land. So, mm-hmm. and that's a whole nother debate, which we can talk yeah. about another time. But, <laughs> yeah. but I don't think yeah. they overtly hate public lands. No, like like much of their critics give it to them. Like they're very much, I think. But and I also think maybe because it's not in their wheelhouse, they don't. Yeah. They're not like a Steve Danes or perhaps what a Cory Gardner was. Um, more so, like really in a state with public lands and and. And I think that can factor into to stuff. And I know Ted goes hunting. We've seen oh, the he, pictures. People have right. criticized his hunting photos. And, you know, maybe it's a personal preference and that kind of enters into his public persona. But I think if you sat down with him, he wouldn't say, I hate them in totality. I don't I don't think that's the case. But I want to ask no, you more so about this Yeah, greater debate. I think some people in conservation, I would say they're more so preservationists. They want people to say entirely like you have to put one thing over another you can't have a let's say a balance or a reverence for obviously the second amendment and public lands and i think sometimes people are <laughs> have their credentials questioned when they yeah. say well i care about the second amendment and and all that and uh I'll it's, be it's frank, interesting I get roasted by a lot of western hunters because i put the second amendment above public lands and it's it's a it's a 1a and 1b deal because i go I go elk hunting with a bow on public land every year. It's like the best week of the year for me. It's the one I look the most forward to. It's the one that I train the hardest for as far as shooting my bow and getting physically fit to take on the mountains. Uh, And I feel like it's the place I go to kind of recharge and revitalize my soul. Um, But again, it's 1A and 1B. And the Second Amendment for me is 1A. And a lot of the Western folks... It's interesting because I've ta- I had Nick Munt from Bone Collector on two weeks ago, and I asked him that question why? Because he's from the Dakotas and he hunts out west a lot. And I was like, why do these? Why do a lot of the Western hunters value public lands over the Second Amendment? And he's just like, well, you know, I think that we just kind of grew up in a culture where it's we just don't believe people are going to take our guns away. And I think interesting admission. Uh, yeah, and but yet you look at I, I tend to believe what politicians tell me. And Biden's saying, I'm going to take your guns away. So I tend to believe him. And and I don't think people say things that they don't really intend to do. Whether he can pull it off or not remains to be seen. But, I mean, when someone says that, hey, I'm going to ban assault assault rifles. Well, hell, there's, you know, four of them in my gun safe that I used to hog hunt with. And so, to me, um, I take great offense to that. And I don't think that people are actively trying to take away our public lands to the degree that, I mean, there's no... There's no assault currently on our public lands like there is a threat to the Second Amendment today. So um, I don't know. That's kind of why I, I lean more towards one over the other, but love both, right? I mean, it's... I think that's it's possible. Very, it's very close for me. Um, but yeah, that's how I align there. See, I'm from the West Coast too. I, I didn't hunt on public lands because I came to hunting later in life, but I used to fish on public lands all the time in the ocean, rivers, et cetera. And maybe because I saw gun control come out of Sacramento, I have a very different perspective than some people who are more traditional Westies. I saw that. And in Virginia, I've seen slowly they've been trying to take away 
gun rights in, in the state. They haven't succeeded fully and they held off on a pursuing a, a fully assault, a full assault weapons ban bill. They tried last year, got a lot of blowback, but I've, I've lived in states where they have, or they've slowly chipped away at second amendment rights. So for me, I do see your view, I would say in a clear sense, because I think there are more attacks on second amendment rights. And, and a lot of people are kind of in denial about it. They're like, it'll never happen. Mm-hmm. And these are all common sense. And I'm like, you read through the bills, you, you talk to people who've lost their gun rights in different States. And it's like, this is not common sense. This is not something that isn't a, a let's say like a, a nascent or it isn't kind of like an innocent view. Like they're really adamant about it. And we've seen just the different measures that have come out in the just few short weeks they've been pushing out stuff and, and kind of the turnover with different bills. And, and let's talk about this, about the, pro, the nomination of the ATF director, potentially no, no, the, the AFT director, <laughs> the AFT director. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new one. <laughs> I'd like to nominate David Chipman for the AFT. And then he said it again. And I was just like, yes. Oh, this guy is, well, God bless him. He's trying, but he's just <laughs> mentally not there. Uh, it's sad. But, uh, yeah, that that was an interesting thing. You know, I remember being a kid in the nineties and the branch Davidian deal was like, it was on the new, I'm sure it was, I mean, it was on the news nationally, but uh, that was an hour and a half from, from where I grew up in the Dallas. You're alluding to the Waco. Yeah. 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 To the, to, you know, and, and Chipman's even gotten the nickname David Waco Chipman now. Yeah. Can you explain that for my listeners? Because some may not know the context. I know he has some connection to to that yeah. but explain so what his the, role was he was the case agent on that uh well on the i don't know what you want to call it i don't know if you could call it murder or if you could just call it gross oversight but uh he wanted to take the the guns basically the branch davidians had a bunch of guns the atf didn't really like that and he was the case agent and through his lack of judgment, uh, what you had was all of the Branch Davidians dying, which, I, you know, they weren't a threat. They weren't violent people. They had never done anything outwardly to even make the local community, like, think that they were um, a threat. But they had a lot of guns. And the, uh, the, the ATF didn't like that. And so Chipman, um, he kind of was instrumental in botch just botching the whole deal and then you have you know the fire and all of them died so i'm reading uh, from the washington free beacon and he said something along the lines of this about waco he said at waco cult members used 2.5 caliber barrets to shoot down two texas air national guard helicopters he said in one of his posts and this is from steven gatowski who's an excellent reporter on the second amendment issue mm -hmm. and then he continues point it is true we are fortunate they are not used in crime more often. The victims of drug lords in Mexico are not so lucky. America plays a role in fueling the violence south of the border. And then Stevens says, no helicopters were shot down during the shootout between cult members and federal agents. Helicopters deployed to the scene by the Texas National Guard during the 1993 incident have been at the center of multiple conspiracy theories over the years. And he says that the Dallas Morning News debunked the myths. And he also had something to say about new gun owners on the media platform called Cheddar in April of last year. He said, most of the new gun buyers who went out to the gun store and bought guns have no training whatsoever. In their mind, they might be competent. They might think they are diehard and ready to go. But unfortunately, they're more like Tiger King. They're putting themselves and their families in danger. 
When you hear statements like that, how much confidence can you have in someone like this to leave the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms? Like telling people they shouldn't have a gun because they don't have any training? Okay, yeah. If you buy a gun, I would advise you to become familiar with it. Maybe shoot with somebody who's shot before. Um, Maybe take a class. But that doesn't mean you have to. And it doesn't mean that if someone broke into your house, you couldn't point a loaded gun at them and still kill them and defend yourself. So that's just absolutely asinine. Um, on on all fronts, and as far as the helicopters, that I, I, that's like not even reality, in my opinion. Um, the 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 ATF moved in on the Branch Davidians first, and they, I mean they they provoked the whole situation. So he can say whatever he wants. I don't believe that to be true. I think the vast majority of people, uh, certainly Texans, believe uh, at the time the media spun it like it was the Branch Davidians. What we found out later is that they, they told, there was no reason for them to even be there. So that's uh, the dudes. And, and he, the guy's anti-gun is all get out. We all know that. That's why Biden appointed him. He so. has affiliation with Giffords uh, stemming from now Senator Mark Kelly and his wife's group. And I think he said something along the lines of you shouldn't have more than 10 rounds in a magazine. I think he somehow determined that was the best standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who is he to decide how many rounds I should have? Uh, in my opinion, uh, I don't, here's the thing is I don't have a bunch of 30 round magazines laying around. I don't, I don't, you know, I think most of mine are uh, 15, something like that for, for hog hunting uh, these days, you, you know, bullets are so hard to find that a lot of people are switching over to bolt guns in Texas uh, just because AR ammunition is just becoming like, uh, you know, a figment of your imagination. Um, and it's so ammunition, so expensive now. Um, but yeah, I, I don't understand. Like that's just like from a home defense standpoint, but we all know what the second amendment really is, is designed to do. And that's to protect us from, from people like him, uh, and his ideals, which don't make any sense to me. Um, and, and if you look at the statistics on mass murders in the United States, it's, there's usually, there's usually between seven about seven is the average over the last 10 years and about a hundred people or less die. Well, there's 19,000 homicides in the United States every year used by, committed by guns. Only a hundred of those are from quote, long rifle uh, mass murderers. So in a, in a country of 300 and what are we 330 million people, something like that. Now a mm-hmm. hundred of them, a hundred people are getting killed in these deals every year. So, you know, you're, your odds as an American of, of, of getting killed in a, by a mass murderer are slim to none. And it's, and, and then I'm not saying that God forbid, and, and Gabrielle, I'm a father of three. That thought crosses my mind when I drop my kids off at school, you know, I tell them I love them and I just pray that nothing like that ever happens. But the, the reality and going back to science, I look at statistics and facts. The reality is it could happen, but, it's not like this is a, a real common thing. Uh, when it happens, it's just all over the media. Unlike all of the homicides that are uh, create, you know, done in places where there is gun control, like Chicago, Baltimore, Washington, DC, uh, which are three of the highest murder rates in the country. And they all have very strict gun legislation. So, uh, you know, this, statistically it just doesn't make sense. They have selective priorities when it comes to gun stories or gun crime stories. They like to pick and choose the narrative and anytime they can no longer exploit 
a story or a narrative, they, you know, after certain mass shooting, horrific mass shootings, they stop covering it because the assailant doesn't fit the profile they wanted, which is ridiculous. You should, you should criticize the assailant. I, I think you shouldn't show their picture nor reveal their name because that gives rise to copycats. That's a problem. The media does too. They invite a lot of that. And with that, yeah, you have to cover the stories fairly, no matter what the assailant looks like, no matter what their motives are. I think you have to cover those stories equally. And it's it's very troubling that they don't. Um, and of course, they're going to hype up certain incidences over another. They don't care about what happens in the inner cities because it doesn't fit their narrative. And a friend of mine reminded me that handguns actually used to be NFA regulated too until like the eighties. I forgot that, or I don't remember that, but I mean, you could give them any ammunition, no point intended to who knows regulate handguns because they're used more so in crimes. Yeah. Well, and the, the, the main way that I, I chalk it up or that I look at it is if you give them an inch, okay, great. If you let them get their foot in the door, they're going to kick it down. They're not going to stop with ARs. Then the next thing they're going to say, okay, no more double stack 1911s. That's too, that's too many rounds in a handgun. Okay. You know, eventually you're going to be left with like a revolver, a shotgun, and you know, your grandfather's 240 automatic shotgun, God forbid a rifle. Uh, I think about my predator hunting. Uh, I don't want to shoot. I don't want to have to shoot them with an, with an over under shotgun. I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, but that's, that's where it goes when you, when you allow them to, uh, to infringe on the second amendment, they will, they will not stop. And it's the same thing with conservation and hunting. Um, California is a perfect example of where, okay, 1994, I believe we banned mountain lion hunting. Okay. 2012. Now we're banning, uh, banning black bear hunting, uh, and bobcat hunting with hounds. Okay. 2020 banning bobcat hunting altogether, like the freaking bobcats an endangered species. There's probably one living in my backyard right now. And, and, and I, and I personally, and this is might sound bad to say, but I like seeing the videos of bobcats eating people's pets in California because you reap what you sow. You put these people in office that don't care about conservation. I'm sorry that Fido got snatched up by the bobcat that's living in your back backyard that you can't hunt anymore. So, you know, it's uh it's kind of humorous to me. Sorry, Fido. You would think of with pets being attacked, same with coyotes. I think there was a story in Maryland recently that someone's dog was attacked and subsequently, I think, killed by a coyote. And they don't understand this until, sometimes they do understand until their pets get killed, then they don't understand the need. But the problem is they'll kind of reach like a middle ground where they'll have like a government bureaucrat managing coyote populations rather than hunters. So it's not fully what we like, but sometimes we can win (laughs) on these issues um sadly has to come to you know people losing pets in some instances for people to understand in the city especially because they're so removed they think only rural interests or rural people really have to deal with that but even given how adaptable a lot of these predators are coyotes sometimes even bobcats in the city there is a need to help manage it in in that case too yeah no absolutely and you know, the thing is going back to like what i said about the second amendment once they get their foot in the door, they're going to try to kick it down. And we've seen what California's done with their wildlife mm-hmm. management. One thing that I did notice in the news uh, last week, which was encouraging, and, and tell me what you think about this, because I feel like we as hunters and conservationists are always on the defensive, right? We're, we're trying to protect what we still have. We're very re- rarely gaining traction in the opposite direction, getting more hunting rights. So I was very encouraged to see that Montana 
passed a law to allow the harvest of black bear with hounds. I saw that story too. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, do you feel the same way that we're, we're kind of always on the defensive, like trying to make in many sure cases. Yeah. yeah. I think I, nationally I, we'll have to be on the defensive for a few years, unfortunately, but in different States, obviously the laboratories of democracy, I think we could see gains made. I mean, you see this with permitless carry passed in gosh, where how many States now Montana passed it, Utah, Tennessee, many yeah. States, Texas hasn't <laughs> surprisingly. Yeah. yeah. But we, we see with, with gun bills for sure. And I think in states where I had to say that it has to have this correlation, but where you see Republicans either elected or flipping state legislatures, you do see more pro-hunting legislation. That's not to say even some state Democrat lawmakers won't be in support of this. A few would if they represent rural districts, but I hate that it has to be partisan related where you'll normally see pro-hunting legislation, maybe with the exception of Massachusetts and Vermont, where there are Republican governors, but they're not really... Uh, doing much to advance hunting, pro-hunting legislation or pro-Second Amendment bills. Uh, but in in some of the cases like out West where they have put Republican governors in, you do see more pro-hunting legislation backed up by a Republican legislature pushing it. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly think it's encouraging because I, I feel like, you know, that we're always just trying to defend uh, our, our, it seems like our ever eroding rights. And, and a lot of times they don't win, but it's like, you know, they introduced the same bill five years in a row and the fifth time it starts to get traction. And then next thing you know, bam, no more coyote trapping in New Mexico. So I don't know. I was very, I was very pleased to see that one come out of Montana. They're going to be passing a lot of bills. And I think they have a, according to one client that I've been working with, I haven't seen traction on this yet, but they want to pass a bill to allow them to put the right to hunt and fish on a ballot initiative for next year. So that could be coming through the pipeline too. Amazingly, only 20 something states have that. And that's different than let's say like second amendment assurances and, and guarantees of gun rights. So individual legislatures can pass these. You've, you've talked about this, I bet before too, where you can have the right to hunt and fish. It's not a constitutional amendment and it's a privilege in many states, but some states do actually have it enshrined as a law, as a yeah. right for you to All do it. Should have it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that so that could be an, an interesting frontier to see if more states adopt that. I think uh, because yeah. they're only like 22, 23, maybe twenty four at most uh, of states. Not even half yet, but but slightly under half have these provisions already in place. Yeah. Well, and it, it has been encouraging to see, um, as you mentioned, all of these states passing the permitless carry as a, why didn't they do this four years ago? Oh, because they weren't, you know, there wasn't a president who said, I'm coming for your gun. So uh, it's just, a, it's a reaction. And I think one that's, it's sadly, uh, you know, necessary. Um, so good on all of those states that are stepping up to, to, you know, make it easy for their, easier for their citizens to uh, protect themselves. And hopefully more will come through the pipeline. I haven't really seen, have the Dakotas passed it? I haven't seen them, but uh, I, I think there are a few, few more out there um, that will, will do it. And that, that'll be something encouraging. And I don't think the federal government can overturn that. That would be really, really, really problematic if they did. I highly doubt they're even able to do that. Um, they, they can't intervene in state affairs yeah. for the most part. Well, and you know, it's interesting to see a president talk about using executive orders to uh, implement gun control, which, you know, he came out last week and said all this talk about ghost guns, which basically to me was much ado about nothing because ghost guns are like so insignificant 
and are used to commit, I don't know what the percentage of crimes is, but it's not even 1%. Yeah. So it was like a posturing by him to appease the anti-hunting, um, you know, community, but really didn't really didn't have a big impact in my opinion. They always like to find scapegoats and generalize their frequency in use in crimes. They t- and oh my gosh, I was so I laughed, but then I also was like wincing inside when he said that when you go to a gun show, you don't submit yourself to a background check. I've never right. bought <laughs> guns from a gun show. I bought it from small dealers or the FFL licensed like little mm-hmm. shops nearby here in Virginia. We have a few close to Washington DC, believe it or not. And you do have to submit like anytime I've gone to a gun show or like a conference or something like um, NRA annual meetings or even shot show. If you want to purchase guns, you may not necessarily get the gun there, but you still have to sub- submit to and provide information for a background check when you go to gun shows. Yeah, absolutely. And every, and a lot of those uh, folks at gun shows are, I mean, basically they're little mom and pop gun stores. They just go to rent a booth at a, gun show to get in front of more people and you have to be a uh, you have to have an ffl to you know to sell guns legally mm-hmm. so and, and you know when when i get a say mossberg sends me a new rifle it goes directly to my guy's house i just go over to his house he still has to verify my background every time uh it's not like he just hands me the gun and i just walk out you know all that paperwork is still done uh he still has to make a phone call and yeah, when he said that, I was just like, yeah, cringeworthy because it's just a lie. Not, Do you remember? No truth whatsoever behind that comment. You've heard some of his past statements before, which are really cringeworthy. I remember he recommended buy a shotgun and shoot through the front door if you have an oh, attacker. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think he really has any firsthand experience. He's claimed before that he owns, I think he said he owns a 20 gauge shotgun and maybe a 12 gauge I'm like, that's not the utterances of someone who's familiar <laughs> with gun usage. So I question right. whether or not he really is a gun owner and has any direct firsthand knowledge. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Did you ever see the video that the guy made where he turned it into like a yes. tune? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was funny. Buy a shotgun. Still <laughs> buy a shotgun, baby. You know, like you don't need a machine gun. You don't need 20 rounds. Well, no one has a machine gun. They're just called... Black rifles or ARs, which, you know, those are kind of black rifles, like even a dirty word to me. Um, it's just a semi-automatic rifle is all it is. It's not a machine gun. Uh, but yeah, to, just to say that, oh yeah, Americans, you, all you need is a shotgun. Okay, well, I don't believe that to be true. And we all know that yeah, criminals are just going to use whatever's handy. Um, but I just, I don't, I doubt Joe Biden owns any guns. And I think that's, that that's pretty self-explanatory. And I think one of the... His son does, though. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where where are the calls for... The media, when he had a press conference last week, I'm really surprised. Like, there are a few good reporters who ask great questions of him, independent of topics related to this podcast. But I was surprised that no one, not even Peter Ducey, maybe he wanted to, but didn't get a chance to. Why didn't they ask him? Clearly, your son was in violation of many different laws. He lied on a background check to get a gun. Would the laws that you support punish him? Like there was no question like that asked. So they're not serious about tackling gun crime or persecuting violent criminals or people who abuse gun laws. No, not at all. And and the media just they they play with Biden with kid gloves. They don't ask him any tough questions. Um, I mean that's the reality. 
And they talked about, uh, with relation to Bristol or, uh, pistol braces, excuse me. I think they said you you've heard them and I am part of the media too. I'm, I, I consider myself a freelance journalist writer, but I'm not like these other people. luckily, but they, they said something in the statement about taking executive action on concealed rifle. I forget what it was. The term, it was kind of like fully semi-automatic, which makes yeah. no sense. And they said something along the lines of concealed AR pistols or something of that nature. And it was just so ridiculous how it was worded. I was like, this is a jumbling of the nomenclature. Obviously yeah. no such so thing exists. what are they talking about? Like a uh, nine millimeters AR? Cause I've shot those. They're a lot yeah. of fun, but they're hardly concealable. Like yeah. you don't put it in a holster and sit down in your truck and go about your day. Uh, I really, they're really just scatter shooting. Um, and like the ghost gun thing, like it's such a small percentage, uh, insignificant and it's not concealable. So it's not even the right description for what they're talking about. Indeed. Yeah. And I think when push comes to shove, I don't really think they're really interested in addressing, let's say tackling of the crime. I think, all of us can agree, and, and NSSF does a phenomenal job. I don't know any Second Amendment supporter or gun owner who celebrates or relishes the fact whenever a mass shooting happens. I find them abhorrent. I think they're awful. People lose loved ones. There's no one in the community who relishes over this at all. And we take gun safety very seriously. We encourage safe storage. We encourage you to get training when you buy guns. Like mm -hmm. I still have to do a lot of training. I've done enough, but I still feel inadequate in some areas. So in your mind, you're like, you have to train Lee, safe, safe train Lee. You have to rep repeat. You have to try new things. You have to always be careful and not do something that could be perceived to be dangerous, not carry where you're not allowed to carry because closer to the cities in Virginia, we used to have, um, what was it? Uh, we used to have, uh, the state law preemption laws where pro concealed carry laws would supersede city law. So now they undid that. So if I go to some parts of Alexandria, I can't conceal carry in a public park anymore. I mean, not that anyone would ever find me concealed carrying in a park. Like how would they know if I'm carrying in a park, if it's concealed, but right. they have signs all over the city now on like government buildings or in public spaces managed by the government. You can't conceal carry. I'm like, that's the least of your worries. Like you're not mm -hmm. gonna, that's not going to discourage criminal act activity. Um, with guns involved. So it, it seems like they're not serious. And also it's against public trends. More and more people are buying firearms, public polling. I think something came out from morning consult, which found even the national rifle association, probably for the first time in public opinion had mostly public par, uh, positive public support versus negative support. I had never seen that before, even though it is somewhat embroiled in some scandals. But um, even the NRA has had more positive regards, more people support gun rights in general, more different demographics are purchasing firearms in really historic numbers. And, uh, you, and like we have a political party that wants to take a crap on all of those people. Yeah. So a lot of their constituents, too, yeah. believe it or not, or traditional constituents. So are you telling people who may vote for you on the left, especially that they can't own firearms? Uh, it's it's really quite a quandary um, yeah. to see that million new gun owners in 2020 because yep. of the pandemic and because of the you know societal movements that mm -hmm. you know, the the unrest and everything. Um, Eight million new gun owners. That's that's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. A lot of votes, and that's a lot of guns. Um, <laughs> to be frank, 
that uh, you know. Um, yeah, I had on Linda Powell of uh, Mossberg. She's own. lovely. I love Linda. That's awesome. Yeah, she's a good friend of the show, and um, we talked about just the rate that Americans are buying guns. It's unprecedented, and it's across it's a, uh, across all platforms. Whether you want to talk about uh, long rifles, handguns, uh, ARs, doesn't matter. People are going to the gun store and buying whatever ammo matches up with what gun they can walk out with that day. That's it mm-hmm. because they're, they're, they're worried about their, they're protecting their family, protecting themselves. Like people are afraid. So they can't also, rely on police. No, no. Well, yeah. We've been, you defund the police. Of course, crime has gone up in that ironic crime has gone up in every place. They've defunded the police. Who would have thought, who would have thought, you know, murder rates went up uh, across the board. I mean, like we couldn't have seen that coming. But, it's very you know, obvious. Yeah. They don't yeah. want to admit it because then people will be, yeah, then they're wrong. They can never admit, admit I would say faults. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I mean, I think this is going to continue and it would be really fascinating. And from a journalistic standpoint, I really am so curious, how are we going to be able to see or notice or mark or kind of extrapolate from the new gun owners? Does it change their voting habits? Like from like a scientific uh, inquiry, like polling inquiry study, I would love to see like, of those many new gun owners, first time gun owners, did many of them change their voting habits? Are they still voting the same way? And I mean, I'm not going to judge someone if they still do, but I think when you purchase a firearm and you see that people, let's say on the left, in this case, are supporting restrictions to gun rights, do they see that disconnect? Are a lot of them going to change their voting habits? Mm. I remember um, pre-COVID, someone had declared, I forget which publication, that gun control was essentially dead on arrival as an issue for a generation, despite the pushes legislatively uh, by executive action and even with mass shootings happening. No, however they can uh, manipulate the statistics to fit their narrative is what they're going to do. But when the, was it the 94, when did Clinton implement the assault weapons ban? I think it was 94 to 2004. It was a 10 year. mm -hmm. And and we did not see a drastic drop in mass shootings it just didn't happen so to think that it that we could re-implement that how many assault weapons are on the streets today you know i mean it's 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 impossible so to say that um law-abiding americans shouldn't have the right to those is absurd because it's not like they're going to go away it's not like a criminal can't get his hands on one if he wants to they Uh, go to the black market it's not going to make a difference yeah. And actually, did you ever see the study? It was from the DOJ Bureau of Labor, not Bureau of Labor Statistics. I'm sorry, from uh, the Department of Justice, some of the criminal statistics that came out and, and they pulled the criminals who were convicted of gun crimes and they asked them, how did you procure firearms for the crimes you used? And most of them didn't go through the so-called gun show loophole. They didn't do it through private sales and they didn't do it through an FFL dealer. So most of their procurement of firearms came illegally, of course. And I think less than maybe 5% came from private sales. It was really minuscule uh, when you, when you crunch through the numbers. So it was really interesting just to see that. And some people may be like, well, the the government may have fixed those numbers, but they're very specialized, as you know, uh, DOJ and FBI statistics when it comes to these type of crimes and the recording of them. So it was, the conclusions were really interesting and they match up with what a lot of us in the industry say or or can surmise uh, that most of the time the criminals don't do, they don't go through a FFL dealer. They don't even use it through private sales, person to person sales. Yeah. And that's not, you know, that's only going to get 
that's even going to become more of a reality if we implement some kind of gun control. Um, I don't know. I, it'd be interesting to see what the value of gun, like how expensive would gun get guns get if they, if they did something like that, like, could I go sell my AR for like $3,000 that, Hey, that might be appealing to get involved in that black market. deal. Right? <laughs> oh <my gosh>. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope we do not get to that point yeah. because we saw that. I mean, where my family is from in Eastern Europe, Lithuania, one of the first things they did, and I was so disappointed when Harvard rescinded and unpublished the study in 2007, they actually found in the 20th century in societies where there was no private firearms ownership, violent crime was a lot higher in, in countries like where my family came from. And in the United States, they contrasted that and they found that actually violent crime was a lot lower with private ownership. But for some reason, maybe due to outside pressure or something, Harvard just unpublished this, but it was a phenomenal study to reference. And mm. I mean, that's why I think one of the, the few things that sets our country apart is the fact we have a second amendment. My dad always says this all the time, having seen and lived behind the iron curtain, he knows firsthand. That's one of the first things they do. Hopefully we never, ever get to that level, but we have to kind of look to history and look to people who lived in those societies to ensure that does not happen. Yeah. I saw a recent statistic on, um, it was, it was an examination of quite a few European countries, um, and violent crime. And so rape and sexual assault, uh, were much higher against women in countries where women didn't have the rights to protect themselves. So that's also something to think about. Uh, might not be the mass shootings, but how many women have to get raped before you, you know, you let them defend themselves. And every woman should have the ability to feel that same way uh, or protect themselves from, from having to become a victim and then, and then Absolutely. Feel by going through firearm training. And I totally get, oh, it had to be empowering for her to, to feel like, okay, this isn't going to happen to me again. Mm-hmm. It is. And I think they don't want to listen to women who have those voices. They just listen to the women's of women of moms demand action and say, see, all suburban housewives believe in their so-called gun safety measures, which are not. It's just cloaked in very nice embellishment of suburban housewives who are pretty complacent and they don't say anything about real gun crimes. They're just given money by Mike Bloomberg and they're told to do what they want to do. Well, think about so we talked like a hundred a hundred or less. That's the average, you know, number of victims in mass shootings in the United States annually for the last uh, decade. The, how many thousands, hundreds of thousands of women are sexually assaulted? Um, you know, every one of those women should have the right to to defend themselves against uh, a man who's physically uh, stronger than them. Um, and you know, having a gun is the best way to do that. It is one of the remedies. Absolutely. And they do have to get training. It may not be for every person, but I think for many people, I think, um, 50%, close to 50% of the new gun owners from last year are women. So it's amazing that, that, yeah, it's, it's as a woman. Like I love seeing that too, because for too long, we're told we just have to stand back, not do anything. Well, you know, it's, it's only, you know, it only works when it fits their narrative. So, and anyway, feminism, took a huge hit when Kamala Harris decided to run with Joe Biden after she said she <laughs> believed the women that accused him of sexual assault. What world do we live in? We're now the VP it, on record has said, I believe those women. And, but Hey, yeah, I'll run with Joe Biden. Uh, that kind of killed the me too movement. I mean, you don't hear anything about it anymore. Uh, how, how, you know, they totally just kind of went with this me too movement and then kicked it to the curb when it no longer fit their narrative. 
But interestingly enough, as it relates to firearms, Kamala Harris, VP Kamala Harris is actually a gun owner herself, but she supports legislation to strip people of that, which I found to be super interesting. Like she's okay with it personally. I mean, this is typical, sadly, of a lot of anti-gun politicians. They're for it themselves, whether they can personally conceal or have firearms or they have bodyguards that are armed but they don't want everyone else to have that same luxury and, and those same rights to protect themselves. But yeah, with so relating to the podcast. Yeah. Unfortunately, she's not very consistent on gun issues. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a lot of faith in her personally, but uh, hopefully I'm wrong. You know, and you know, I could sit here and bash the, that administration all day, but, but personally I want them to succeed uh, because that means America's winning. Right. I, I, I want them to do well. I don't agree with some of the stuff they're trying to do, but after four years, I hope we are a better country um, than we were when he went into office. So I don't, I don't hate him. I have no ill will towards them or any Democrat or leftist for that matter. Um, I, I want this country to come together. And uh, unfortunately, right now, it just seems like we're so divided that I don't know if that's reality. But, but I always hope and pray for it. I would hope so. But even something as, let's say, likable and pretty unifying as national parks. I don't know if this is a directive from the Biden interior department, but I was telling you about how some officials in certain national parks are using COVID restrictions as a cudgel to limit the number of people who visit national parks, which is actually a very perfect place to socially distance. You can even view the park from your car. And I'm reading from the New York Post. It says Yosemite National Park. And this is typical. I know the parks require advanced reservations for camping. But interestingly enough, now Yosemite and also Rocky Mountain National Park and Glacier National Park are requiring advanced reservations for day visitors during the peak summer season to limit the number of visitors and allow social distancing. And they say under the new rules, advanced reservations will be required for day use visitors who enter Yosemite from May 21st to September 30th. And they said this plan, one director said the plan is to protect human health and safety and provide as much access as we can. Then they continue saying Rocky Mountain National Park and Glacier National Park are putting similar rules, which have been encouraged for decades by environmental groups, but resisted by gateway communities whose economies depend heavily on tourism. So I don't see this as a COVID preventative step. I think, sadly, this is a mechanism for... (laughs) let's say preservationists to restrict public lands access for the public. Isn't that funny? Yeah. And it's just absolutely absurd uh, to to think that you could just be walking around outside and contract this, you know, this, this virus is utterly unscientific. The virus isn't floating around in the atmosphere. You actually have to be close to someone that has it to get it. Um, They probably want you to wear masks outside too. They require it. Yeah, they do. Oh my yeah, God. there was a one of the few directives. Yeah, in a national park, you do have to wear a mask now. I think. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I, I I was uh black bear hunting in New Mexico in October, and coming from Texas, and you know the pandemic was still raging at the time. I go to New Mexico, and I'm walking around Taos, New Mexico after my hunt. I Bell and uh, my dog and I were going to go into the mountains and grouse hunt, and again back on public land. I love public land, uh, and I'm walking around Taos to get a bite to eat, and everyone's outside walking around with a mask on, and I was like, it was like this went into this time warp and maybe that's you know maybe that's consistent with other places like where you live i don't know for me it was like where where did i what just happened why are people walking around outside with masks on um now they want you to wear them in a national park it's just yeah uh, preservation sure let's not let's have less people in and let's generate less revenue how does that even work 
you I mean, revenue. You do because what is it? There's, if we want to talk, I won't talk about infrastructure, but in terms of infrastructure demands, the national parks need them. They need to repair the crumbling bathrooms, buildings, roads, et cetera. So all those monies that can be generated can go to help replenish in addition to the Great American Outdoors Outdoors Act that was passed. But there's actually a bill in Congress passed by new Michigan Congresswoman Lisa McLean, which would actually prevent the Department of Interior from using COVID as a basis for restricting or limiting outdoor recreation Use of land or water. Yeah. So it's a bunch of Republicans, thankfully, pushing this. And there is no number to it yet, but she was one of the first to shepherd this. And I'll actually be speaking with her, I think, sometime soon. But you should talk to her, too. She'd be super interesting. But I will certainly listen to your interview and then I'll, I'll give her a shout. Because, yeah. Uh, that sounds yeah, and, fascinating and, 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 and overdue, to be frank. Like, uh, it, well, it's sad that we even have to have this reaction, but good you know, good for her. And, and I certainly think like every state should pass something like that. Um, or, so she's trying to do this on a federal level or in yes, Michigan, just to no federal. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she, oh, she yeah. has a this lot of wonderful. Yeah. Um, there isn't a number to it quite yet, but I, I totally agree with this effort because we keep hearing people in our community talk about public lands must be kept in public hands, but The problem with that sometimes is, and I've talked about this and I've examined this a little bit, but when you get further, further high up into public lands designations, whether it's national monuments or national parks, sometimes politicians can use those designations to restrict public lands access. People don't understand this. They don't see that the unintended consequence sometimes that come with this. And that's why sometimes state wildlife agencies discourage, let's say, national monument designations because they can sometimes become national park designations. And there is a place for national parks. I love visiting national parks. I was just near Shenandoah National Park this weekend on a private land um, that someone owns over there. And it was really cool to be surrounded and see that confluence. But the national parks they should be open to people in all the different designated NPS lands. There's a lot of different lands aside from the 63 parks. There's in DC, we have like the tidal basin with the cherry blossoms. They closed that down for the most part. They discouraged few crowds of people to go so they could use this to restrict. And I don't see how this is conducive to CDC findings, which say your rate of transmission, the rate of transmission is a lot lower outdoors. You can socially distance. You can wear your mask if you're not within six feet apart from people So I think this is a way that they can use this. And I I think it's a selfish desire too. like that article had said, like a lot of environmental groups don't want people to go there, which is counterproductive. Like, what's the point of a national park if you can't visit it? Public land means you and I own it, Gabriella. Yes. Gabriella Hoffman, me, Cable Smith, we own that and we should have the right to access it whenever we want to. But, you know, barring whatever, you know, park hours are in place, uh, certainly need to. I'm not saying just grossly don't adhere to rules that are implemented for, for safety or whatever, but we have the right to access it. It's ours. We own it as Americans. It's our, it's our birthright. That's my land. So you don't have the right to tell me that I can't go in there and utilize it within the rules that are outlined, you know, however I, however I want to, whether that's camping, hiking, bird watching, hunting, if it's allowed, um, whatever the case, that's up to you, the individual, but, you don't have the right to to prevent me from doing that. Um, thankfully, we have a a long history of of conservation going back to uh, old Teddy and his foresight. I mean, that's what makes. If you look at Europe, they don't have this. Where you're no. from in Lithuania, 
they don't have it. Uh, public lands to the degree that we have in the United States is it's really a national treasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike, unlike any other countries. Um, and, and we, you know, owe a lot to those, those are forefathers of conservation for sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it's so ironic. Let's, uh, let's prevent people from going outdoors. Okay. Well, people are still going to congregate. Now they're going to just do it in their house where they're not outdoors. Like it's like the safest place to go when there's, when there's a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And it's, you know what, for many years, so many people have complained, why aren't people frequenting national parks? Why aren't they going? And while it was a little inconvenient sometimes to encounter large groups of people, when I went to Shenandoah and hiked there, I actually was relieved also to see so many people go there. What seemed like the first time in a national park, they've never been to a park and like bringing in people who are a little removed from public lands to come and see what it's all about, to enjoy waterfalls. That's what's pretty common in Shenandoah. And it's like, it's a good like introduction to America's natural beauty. And if we have few people going, I mean, these, these places are big. They have thousands upon thousands of square miles. I mean, you can accommodate lots of people and it's not going to degrade the, the roads. It's not going to degrade the quality of land as long as you're not leaving trash and, and being abusive. That's what it's there for. It's for us to use. So again, preservation over conservation, you know, one cool thing about COVID and it's and there's been very few cool things about COVID, right? But um, the new hunters that and and hunters who came back into the fold, um, and like you said, you you referenced people that might have been using a, a national park for the first time. Well, everyone's locked indoors, going stir crazy. Uh, so what do they do? They they went hunting, or they went hiking, or they went fishing. And I think that uh, if we can retain those people. Hey, the more the merrier. We need all of the, you know, the hunting and fishing advocates on our side as possible. So I think that was a really cool thing that we saw. Like Idaho, for example, has uh, over-the-counter leftover elk tags and mule deer tags, which typically sell out like, you know, within a couple weeks, maybe a month. Well, they weren't really like, like you didn't have to rush out and get them. They sold out the first day this year. You're kidding. No, in, in fall of 2020. Yeah. So I think uh, that, you know, that's, telling stat of just how many people took to the outdoors during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes. That's an awesome thing. And we need more of it, not less because that's how the monies will be replenished. And especially if they try to move conservation dollars into, let's say away from hunters and anglers and guns and ammo to like a bike, bike tax or backpacking tax or hiking tax, which is not sustainable in my opinion. I don't think you could ever recoup as much from those people. And I think hunters and anglers are best equipped to do this. So maybe selfishly, I don't want to see that model changed in any manner, but the same, I mean, people don't give credit to hunters and anglers and, and granted you have to go above and beyond, beyond just buying like a tag, which is a great first step. But I think getting involved in an organization, sharing the virtues of true conservation efforts is extremely important, but that's a good stepping stone for people. And we even see Pew trusts. We see all these different, let's say non-friendly sources now realizing, oops, if we discourage hunting, we won't have this funding coming for all these different wildlife restoration efforts, habitat restoration efforts. So you can't bite the hand that feeds you. (laughs) No, no. And you mentioned, um, you know, getting involved with an organization, uh, highly recommend all, if there's any, new hunters out there. Um, there's so many good ones, ducks unlimited. SCI. Uh, I'm a member unlimited. too. 
Oh yeah, SCI of course. Elk Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. REMF, yep. Uh, and then pheasants forever. I mean, mm-hmm. there, whatever you you're into, there's a there's a conservation organization that caters to that specific thing. And I, I'm on the uh, been on the Dallas DU committee for I don't know like ten years. Love it. It's one of my favorite nights of the year. You feel good about putting that work in as a volunteer uh, for conservation. You do it for the ducks, but every species benefits from uh, habitat improvement. And yeah, just uh, I encourage everyone to, to find one that you know, suits whatever they're interested in and, and get plugged in. There is no shortage of them. You. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Why don't we conclude our conversation, which has been so robust and kind of all over the place, wide ranging. Why don't we talk about something that's been on your mind about Bill Gates becoming, I think it's now the largest private landowner in the United States. Yeah. Uh, well, certainly farm owner. And I, I, I yes. do need to check, but as far as agricultural land, he is now the largest one in the United States. Okay. Why is this billionaire um, tech giant buying up ag land? Well, it's real simple. He is a primary investor in two of the largest fake meat enterprises on the planet and uh, impossible meats and the other one is called Beyond Meat. And mm-hmm. you've probably seen these fake burgers popping up at fast food joints. Um, and, and here's the cool thing, Gabriella. A Big Mac costs you five bucks. A uh, Impossible Burger will cost you 12. <laughs> so yeah, they're, 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 they're great. They're expensive. These, uh, these fake meat companies aren't regulated like, like the beef industry is or the, agri- uh, the uh, uh, domestic industry is. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very weird. You don't know what, what's in these things. But what we do know is that it comes from things like soy, things that come out of the ground, proteins that you can grow through. Genetically animals. modified stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's, you, all you have to do is connect the dots. Okay, Bill, Bill Gates bought up all this land because he wants you to eat his fake meat. And he just released a book recently called How to Avoid Climate Disaster, I believe is the title. And in that book, he's quoted as saying, well, all first world countries should shift to fake meat. You know, it's that's what he said. And if you don't want to do it, if he said, eventually people will get used to the increased price. And if they don't, then we could always do it through forced regulation. Oh that's my his gosh. Quote. I was like, for, forced regulation. So you, one of the richest men in the world, are so arrogant and self-absorbed and want to get richer that you want to make me eat your product at an increased cost. And if I don't want to eat it, then you'll, you'll get the government to make me eat it. That's what he (laughs) says. That's his mentality. Uh, which, you know, I think about, first of all, that's completely off base and arrogant and him trying to dictate to Americans how they need to live their lives is absurd on every level. But from a conservation standpoint, he's not going to stop buying up ag land. If he, if he gets any momentum with this thing, He's going to buy more and all none of no animals get to u- utilize that ag land. And once it's, you know, put into once, the, once trees are knocked down and soy or whatever it is, that's planted, that stuff's not going to go back into forest. Uh, we're not going to slowly, I mean, we're not going to just start having less people to feed. Um, so all those animals, the deer, the Turkey, uh, everything loses on that front. So it's truly disturbing to me. Uh, as you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about it and I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of Bill Gates trying to dictate to not just Americans, but the first world 
that they should quit eating meat. Well, that's a first world problem in my opinion. Like uh, veganism isn't a thing in third world countries. It just isn't. It doesn't exist because they don't have the luxury of being so uh, snooty that they can just say, "Oh no, I'm 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 too good for meat. I don't I don't eat animals." That's just a bunch of BS. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of people perhaps not take his musings to heart. I think a lot of ranchers and farmers are not going to go in line with it. And yeah, he he loves to virtue signal and. Mm. I mean, this is kind of like a pet project of super wealthy billionaires. I think Al Gore is also tied to a lot of these fake meat companies. And there's really no conservation message attached to this other than free enterprise is bad. Um, We don't need to use what we have to continue to make land better in terms of usage, lowering carbon emissions, and still keeping all the industries we have working. Because I think... They just oh, want to yeah. use it as a method of control. I hate to say it point blank, but there's no seriousness attached to this other than employing methods of control and dictating to people what they should and shouldn't eat in a free society like ours. And I think everywhere across the world where you have people start to consume meat, they're a lot healthier, real meat, not fake meat. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned carbon emissions. Uh, there's a big misconception out there about like cattle are always blamed for like carbon, this huge carbon uh, footprint. Well, if you look at the machinery used in agriculture, it is, it is like 12% higher. Like uh, cows are like 3% of the United States carbon footprint. Um, machinery used for agriculture is like, uh, I think 11, almost 12%. So that's only going to go up. Cows are not the devil, uh, but burning all that fuel to, to plant more soy, certainly not good for conservation or the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, for a lot of these energy sources too, while I still have you, uh, we're going to see, I mean, you have to burn so many more traditional fuels if you want to do like electric vehicles, solar panels, wind turbines. So people don't understand what goes into all these alternatives actually exhaust more from energy using existing energy, but even like five or 10 times higher. So it's it's crazy that yeah. this is not really sustainable, but yet they're billing it as sustainable. So I think there's going to be a great meat revolt. And and I wrote at townhall.com last year, and I talked to all these different game chefs and we, I countered this one New York times op-ed that said the end of meat is here. And I was like, no, the end of meat is not here because people, (laughs) thank you. Yeah. Cause people are now wanting to eat organically sourced protein sources, whether it be fish or or wild game, Mm -hmm. given the, remember, do you remember the news of the shortages? early on yep. in the pandemic. So people are like, what do I do? What do I do? And then they were like, Oh, I can go fishing and I can go hunting. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Right. And, and there was, you know, a shortage and then people were afraid meat prices were going to just go through the roof because of the shortage. Uh, yeah. We're going to go hunting or like we were talking about earlier, which is wonderful. And I'm, I'm uh, silver lining from COVID-19 hunter. We got some, we got some mm-hmm. new hunters or maybe got some old hunters back into our ranks. And, and that's a wonderful thing. Cable, how can people connect with you, listen to the show, follow your musings on social media? Uh, so I have a lot of musings, but uh, yeah, a Lone Star Outdoors show on Instagram and uh, Facebook. And then LoneStarOutdoorsShow.com. The weekly podcast is up there. And of course, iTunes, Spotify, all that good stuff. So that is where I'm at. Um, I really, really appreciate you having me on. I, I certainly enjoyed the conversation. Yes, thank you so much for coming on. Likewise, I really appreciate it. You have a great day. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. If you enjoyed hearing from both Travis and Cable, let me know on social media. 
tell us on Apple reviews. Leave us those five-star reviews to let us know if you're enjoying the show, what you'd like to see more, etc. your general thoughts. That'd be greatly appreciated. Okay, the guest I was warming up you guys for, we're going to have to postpone the announcement because I have that interview now pushed about a week from today. We were supposed to record today. However, they're still very interested. They just had some scheduling conflicts, and that's okay. I'm really easy to adjust in terms of my schedule. My schedule is pretty flexible. So that special lawmaker I was teasing up, we're going to have to wait a little bit more. So you guys will get to hear from them in about a week, give or take. So stay tuned for that. And when the time comes closer for that, we will do that. But next week we have some great guests lined up. So here's a preview of who you can expect. We have Shoshana Weissman. I may be able to fit also Congresswoman Lisa McLean to talk about her national parks bill. We also will have Thomas from Professional Outdoor Media Association. He's the executive director, and he should come on to talk about POMA, what we're all about, his background in the outdoor industry, and more. I think we're also going to have this special lawmaker guest as well on the show, and just so much more happening. And we will do some more monologue-type podcast episodes as well as they come, but I figure we can also intermix guests with what is trending because that's a little easier sometimes than you guys just listening to me i don't want to just have you listen to my voice all the time let others speak i think that's better but we will have some monologue podcast episodes as they come but great guests lined up people from all over i feel like the different outdoor spectrum people who are not necessarily hook and bullet but who at least support conservation in its truest form So we will bring more of those folks on. Okay, that is it for the week. Make sure you connect with us, leave those reviews, and tell your friends about the podcast. Thanks for listening.